0: Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told
1: you. criminology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and welcome to 2022. You have survived another exceptional year, and although global calamity appears to be becoming less exceptional, we can still take the time to reflect and hopefully make plans for the future. This episode will be a new year special in which we will ask four researchers for their thoughts and feelings about 2021 and their hopes for the coming year if you were looking forward to the segment where i learned something basic about digital forensics don't worry that'll be back next episode for our new year special we'll be joined by dr jin lee assistant professor at george mason university in the united states dr david will lecturer at the university of manchester in the uk Dr. Bridget Harris, Associate Professor at the Queensland University of Technology in Australia, and Dr. Kathy Markham, Professor at Appalachian State University, also in the United States. I think it's great to take in a range of perspectives at the start of planning anything. So it's great to have such a diverse group to help us get on track for the new year. Each of these researchers are in different parts of the world and are at different points in their careers. They have different approaches to research and work on different aspects of cybercrime. I would ask you to keep in mind that these interviews were recorded at different times and all in advance of publishing the episode for practical reasons, but they were all recorded at some point during December of 2021. I just say this because the situation with COVID has been, shall we say, fluid and changed quite a bit in different places throughout the period of that month and that might've affected their opinions on certain things. Anyway, let's get started and we'll ask Dr. Jin Lee about his thoughts on 2021.
0: 2021, um, I thought was, a huge improvement from the year prior. Um, you know, we we got vaccines out during this year as well, um, which helped with the anxiety. But something that I really appreciated about this year was that there was a lot more awareness to the things that we study. So online crime and, and, and why that's so important, right? Like when the pandemic hit, everyone was forced to be on Zoom. So if you had bad internet, or if your computer wasn't working, that was a major problem. And so nowadays, like when you talk to folks about cybercrime and online deviance, you don't have to explain the whole nine yards anymore. It's rather everyone kind of understands now. There's a shared understanding of, of what this is and why it's important to know more about it. There's also more examples now that aren't too techy. Everyone now knows what Zoom bombing is. And so if you were to say that, It's no longer just the younger crowd or the older crowd who work in tech. It's now everyone that has survived this craze. We all understand what that means and why certain aspects of that are concerning, right? And so 2021, in in general, I thought was a huge breath of fresh air from the year prior, a lot more awareness of what's happening globally as well. Of topics that aren't highlighted enough.
1: Oh, that's really interesting because a, a couple of years ago at a cybersecurity conference, someone who's extremely knowledgeable about cybersecurity said to me that ransomware is a good thing because all of the vulnerabilities and cybersecurity issues that are underlying the problems with ransomware pre existed ransomware. It's just that ransomware, because of the way it acts, makes people pay attention to it and it sort of creates a ground shift absolutely so you think you think maybe the pandemic has done that at least in some small way for a cyber crime
0: oh i think without a doubt and like i have to be careful with how i phrase it because in no way am i saying that i'm happy that these things happen using that ransomware example like when colonial pipeline here was hacked that's kind of what tipped it over for the justice department to label ransomware as a terrorist act. It took that vent for things to finally fall in line, if you will. If I could have it my way, I would rather us not have the ransomware attack and have this comprehensive understanding of the severity of these behaviors. But looking on the positive end of things, a lot of people are now interested in knowing more about it. It's kind of like what they said about this virus. A lot more people are interested in being pharmacists or physicians, you know, like it's, it's, it's inspired a new wave of people toward a certain field and endeavor. And I feel like I can say similar things about the progression of cybercrime scholars as well. It's just, you know, um, I was at ASC last month and the cybercrime panels had their crowds than what I'm used to, you know, like in the past it'd be, if you were lucky, maybe 10, maybe 15 on a good day. But my first session, I had roughly 25 people. It's it's just because people have heard about you know like they know what Tor is, they know what cryptography is. They're not just cryptocurrency, but what cryptography. And encryption is writ large, you know, they have experienced certain forms of social isolation because they were online, you know, but in other senses, they were able to use technology to their advantage despite being physically distanced from the world, right? There's more awareness of the capabilities of technology for bad as well. So yeah, there's just a wider sense of awareness from across the board. It's no longer just the young people or or the tech industry folks that know these things. It's across the board folks have some sort of understanding of why it's good and how it can possibly be used for bad so
1: what about what about next year
0: i think in the new year there's there's more optimism about travel since now we know more about the conditions that we have been facing over the past two years, people are taking active measures to keep safe while being able to engage in physical interactions like, like conferences, right? So I know that uh, at George Mason, we have um, a center called the Center for um, Evidence-Based Crime Policy, and it's hosted in DC. And they're having their first cybercrime panel there, but it's going to be an in-person conference. And so there's more opportunities for that, but also for collaboration. And I think what we missed a lot because of the pandemic was the inability to network with people that you normally wouldn't. Like I could find people on Twitter or we could meet through other mediums, but there's just something organic about meeting someone at a panel that you didn't intend to meet. but through discussion and questions, you arrange a coffee, and, you know and then that that leads to a grant or a paper. That's what I think I missed the most during the past two years of the pandemic. But I think looking forward, I'm very optimistic about how these conferences are going to be held, such that you can be safe while still getting what you want from these events.
1: Great! If more people are being drawn into the area, then there'll be new people with new angles, new perspectives on things, and more cybercrime research.
0: Absolutely! Um, I just think there's it's it's such a fruitful field now. Whether you're in the cybercrime field as a as a scholar or as a practitioner, as law enforcement, there's more work to do, and now that people have a better understanding, it just seems like a fruitful time to come together while still being safe, obviously, first and foremost, but being able to come together and share these these resources and maximize these these opportunities.
1: You might remember our next guest, Dr. David Bulgil from episode 40, which is worth a listen if you missed it. I asked him for his thoughts on 2021 as well.
2: Yeah, so uh, I think that for the cyber grand British communities, I mean, this- 2021 has been encouraging, and I'm sure that other researchers may be saying the same things here in, in this episode, that I've seen an increasing awareness about cybercrime in the criminology community, for instance. Some more criminologists are now at least mentioning cybercrime in their, in their papers and in their studies, and including measures about cybercrime victimization and offending. That just didn't used to be the case three, four years ago but I think that there's like an increasing awareness. I think that's a positive sign um, that, that maybe us as a community are starting to have a, a little bit of an impact uh, outside, outside our small niche, outside our small community. But this is also an, an evidence also as cyber crime is increasing, which is not a positive message, but it's an evidence that we all are, are aware about. And I think that also, two other things, two other positive things have happened in our community. I think we are rediscovering open data that's available out there and that researchers are using more and more to analyze cybercrime related issues. So uh, for quite some time, I had seen that most cybercrime researchers were using primary data, recording their own uh, survey data, their own interviews and so on, which is positive, of, of course. But I think if we can make use of already available data, we are doing research in a more efficient way uh, and probably reutilizing data sources, which is which is always good, right? And also related to that, uh, I, I see more and more researchers in our community making their data and their analytic codes open access. And uh, so enabling anyone to access their their codes and replicate their studies, I think that's positive for science and positive for us and to continue growing, Yeah, following principles of transparency and, yeah, and open data and open science. There's been a
1: lot of talk about the importance of diversity in research and the bringing of different perspectives to things. I mean, just because somebody has already done some research using a data set doesn't mean that your perspective on that data isn't valuable. Yeah. So like, like, I, get, I get your point that's that's super important that not only is that being made available, but people are are seeing that as a valid form of uh, of analysis and contribution
2: yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, a concern or there used to be a concern in the academic community that utilizing a data source that had already been used in, an, in another paper may reduce your chances of getting published and I think that some reviewers, maybe some old fashioned reviewers, still see that as a reason. For considering an article maybe less worthy because it's less novel in the data used. But I think it's quite the opposite, right? The more we use similar data sets to rediscover ideas, to replicate results that may have found somewhere else, to, to make sure that we don't make mistakes when we analyze our data and that our results are reproducible um, by, by some of the people that may be directing in this in, in similar topics. I think that's super important. And that's how. Big theories in science are created, right, by rediscovering and reusing similar data sets to explore similar topics. And how
1: about for for twenty twenty two? What's got you excited about twenty twenty two?
2: I think the cybercrime community will continue growing. I think that, and we still have some some challenges. and And I think that the two main challenges that we have at the moment are increase our presence in top journals in, in our fields, not only in criminology, but we have people in other fields also working in, in cybercrime. I think that it's true that the number of papers about cybercrime offending or of victimization is increasing, but not necessarily in the top three journals that are like the flagship outlets in in our disciplines, right? I think we need to make an effort to to try to get there, but also we need to reach to those journals and so that they are they are aware that they are lacking in this type of papers, and this type of of research, I think that's important. And the second part is having impact in, in policy. I think that most countries are aware now that this is a real issue and they are implementing policies for, for prevention. I don't see that clearly that social sciences is having an impact on those, on those policies, but I am somehow hopeful as well. So recently there was this committee by the UN created to elaborate a new convention about the use of technologies for criminal purposes. And I am aware that some criminologists have been invited to join this this convention at the core of the United Nations, right? So I think that we, uh, like the voice of our community, will be heard more and more in, in policy making as well. Do
1: you do you think that that policy impact is happening because of efforts that are sort of making their way from the ground up, sort of through? police through the the national Cybersecurity center there in the uk and places like that or is it just that now cyber is a barbecue stopper conversation and politicians are having to be able to talk intelligently about it is it now just in the in the the national conversation or or has all of that groundwork sort of started to pay off
2: i think it's probably a combination of both right that policymakers are aware that they need to contact with uh, scholars to get insights about what research is being done in in this domain and how the results from research can be used for policymaking. And also, it's easier for politicians to find those people because there's more people uh, doing research in this this area. So I think it's a, a combination of both, right? Like more people are doing research in these topics and Politicians maybe are, are more interested or are more open to receiving feedback yeah, and inputs from scholars.
1: Are you looking forward to attending conferences in person or do you think that you'll be judicious in which ones you go to and which ones you, you go to online?
2: I'm so much looking forward to face to of conferences, like, of course, when it's safe again and when the health experts recommend us to travel and meet other All the researchers, again, I'm so much looking forward to to that. And next year, the European Society of Criminology is going to be in South Spain, in Malaga. So that's going to be like a must if we can go. But I think it's also important to be aware that COVID has served for universities and research councils to realize that online conferences can happen. They are cheaper. And I think we're going to be more and more pushed from our institutions and organizations to continue doing online conferences because it's a way for institutions to save money, right? So I am aware that the UK ESRC, the Economic and Social Research Council, they will start asking in research proposals, why are you attending this face-to-face conference? And why is it not online? Could you attend online? So that it will be cheaper for, you know, for everyone, for the institution, for, for the Research Council to, to, to facilitate your participation. So I think that COVID has had this unintended an, an consequence of making um, yeah solutions realize that they can save money uh, in okay. conferences. So it's going to be more and more difficult, I think, to travel, but we need to keep pushing for it. At least one conference a year, I think it's fine. I, th-
1: I think, at least in terms of cybercrime, there probably wasn't enough venues. So I hope that it becomes all of the offline conferences that had been established plus the online conferences that have grown. So... I can't work out how to make hybrid conferences work in a way that doesn't prioritize either the people in person or the people online and, and leave one group feeling that they're getting a lesser experience. But I, I, I hope that we get to a place where we have the same number of offline conferences and then an additional set of online conferences that are smaller and more targeted. Yeah.
2: And from my side, as soon as I can, or as soon as we are allowed to, I need to attend my first cybercrime conference. Like, Specifically, cybercrime conference. I have attended workshops and seminars and working groups in bigger, big conferences, but never a cybercrime conference. So I'm looking forward to that also in mid
1: Have you been to an in-person conference since the pandemic?
2: I attended a seminar in London, uh, organized by the Office for National Statistics, and it was it was weird. So I thought it would be more awkward, and people would be wearing masks, and people wouldn't want to talk to each other. But actually, I was the only one wearing a wearing face covering, and it, it was fine. I had I had the chance to talk to some colleagues that I hadn't seen for a while, and so on. But I think it was the only face-to-face conference that I have attended this year.
1: Did you find that the social interaction norms had changed at all? Because for me, I I only went to one conference last year, and I shook one person's hand, and I felt weird and terrible about having done it.
2: Yeah, same for me. Yeah, no, but I think that most people didn't really care a lot about it, uh, about the COVID situation. It was a couple of months ago in in November, uh, probably those months before Omicron became a a thing, uh, where people were starting to feel hopeful again and get relaxed and think that with the two vaccines it was enough and they could go back to normal. Uh, Yeah, so the environment was super friendly. Everyone was shaking hands, no problem. And again, I was the only one, maybe not the only one, but one of the very few people wearing face covering. Yeah, but I had a good time. It was was very nice.
1: Long-time listeners of the show will remember Dr. Bridget Harris from episode 21 and her interesting work looking into technology-facilitated family and intimate partner violence. I asked her for her thoughts on the year that has been.
3: The thing that I have really enjoyed seeing this year is the growth in the survivor collective that we have in Australia. Uh, So they've always been there, but I think are much more present. So they've got some really good online spaces, Twitter and Facebook, for instance. And they are being much more engaged in projects as they should be. So I think Australia is getting much better at recognising expertise that survivors have. And that has been really great for me to see because domestic family violence survivors, they know how technology can be abused they know how it can be weaponized and they have not only ideas about the flaws in our systems with design development regulation but they've got really great ideas about what we need to be doing and so they always deserved a seat at the table but often haven't had it but I feel in Australia that's starting to change so survivors are being more engaged by researchers by tech companies by government Uh, so that has been pleasing for me to see so that's been a good aspect I think something else that's been really great is yes we haven't had the conferences but there's been a lot of webinars that have been online that would only have been in person beforehand and they've been open to the public and I think that has been fantastic so we have had more conversations with community groups we've had more conversations with researchers around the world and um it's possibly more common to be you know stay up late to do this whereas you wouldn't be able to travel but you can stay up late for a webinar and you can hear what people are doing the other side of the world uh, so i think there's been some really great aspects with i guess the space that i work in but then also our space as researchers so i think there's been some really good dialogue that's come out it's probably amplified a lot of the potentials of technology, and then also some of the pitfalls. So I think maybe we're getting more reflective about technologies uh, and the spaces technology has in our lives. So it's been, it's been positive in that way. There's been lots of horrible things with COVID, but there have been some some positive changes, I think, that have come out the way we've navigated that.
1: Do you think the increased emphasis on technology just generally has helped emphasise domestic violence and a technological aspect in its own right rather than just an ancillary of a problem?
3: Yeah, I definitely think so uh, because people have really thought about how present technology is and what would it mean if it was weaponised or what would it mean if I couldn't use it freely. really. I think that has come into play. Probably another change that we've had, certainly in Australia and the UK in particular, is changed uh, lenses in really how we're thinking about domestic violence. So to think about it as coercive control and to think about it as patterns of behaviour and not incidences, which is what our justice system often does. And that's largely been because we've been looking at, you know, do we change the way we legislate around uh, domestic violence? And we've been looking at a coercive control lens in both the UK and, um, and Australia. So I think that's been a bit of the change too. People have gone, okay, well, technology is just another tool and there are all these different tools that paper traders use. Uh, so I think both of those things have been happening. And, I, and there, there has been some shift in the tech industry too to really think much more about uh, the ways tech is being weaponized. There's a long way to go there, but the tech industry is changing. But in part, that's because there are a lot of really great advocates and researchers that have joined some of the really big social media platforms. Uh, so there's been a few a few things that have been happening there. But I'd really credit it a lot to yeah some fantastic advocates and researchers that are joining the platforms and sort of saying, well, this is problematic. We need to think about how we do this. We need to engage with these groups. Uh, so probably all of those things, a bit of the change in technology in our lives. Thinking about how we frame and legislate around domestic violence, and then yes, a bit of change in the tech industry. So,
1: 2022. What are your what are your hopes and dreams, or, or at least expectations for 2022?
3: I would really hope that what we do see is much more engaging with survivors, and I think that that's certainly where we're trending in Australia. But what I'd like to see is really that happening more globally. That when we're thinking about who researchers, who governments, who platforms should be engaging with, but survivors are, are who they're engaging with too. We're starting to see more discussion about laws around and, and maybe new laws or legal change or justice change around domestic violence, but also around technology and tech crimes. And I think it's important to look at those avenues, but also to think about the limits. What are some of the limits of the law in this space? What are some of the limits of, of what justice systems can do? Uh, so I'd like us really to be looking beyond the justice system thinking about other solutions and responses to domestic and family violence and in that and the way that tech can be abused. I would hope that we really continue being accessible with our research and thinking about the ways that we can present publicly, the way that we can share information through technologies and so that there is much better knowledge sharing, there is much better engagement and there's no reason we can't continue that. We've looked at really a lot of different platforms and pathways with COVID and there's no no reason we can't and we shouldn't continue
1: to do it. Finally, we speak with Dr. Kathy Markham, who helped us learn about cybercrime theory way back in episode 11. I asked her for her thoughts on 2021.
4: I think, to me, 2021 was about transition, but it was also about embracing newer adaptations for the classroom, for academic delivery, for, you know, conference delivery, Um, I think, you know, as I said earlier, we were kind of forced into different adaptations of delivering our material or attending professional conferences because of the pandemic. And then in 2021, we moved into this period of, oh, this is working well, and that there are different ways and more efficient ways that we can provide material and present material to our peers as well as to our students, uh, which was a real benefit. You know, in this time of tragedy and so much upheaval that there were silver linings, I believe, in a lot of different ways, professionally and personally. And to me, really, the highlight was attending the Southern Criminal Justice Association Conference in in September, not only because that organization is very important to me and I look forward to it every year, but it was the first back-in-person academic conference that we had. Uh, We spent a lot of time planning it, but I think we were all kind of on pins and needles. Of are we going to pull this off? Is it going to be successful? But is it going to be successfully safe? And people are going to leave safe and healthy. And they did. And so by the second or third day, we all were kind of went. Okay, this is going to be you know this is going well and this is great. And when people left, they were happy. And so to me, that was a huge professional highlight to see everyone kind of getting back into a more normalized pre-pandemic activity.
1: Do you think that the virtual conferences are something that's going to complement those conferences? I
4: think so. I, I compare it to the the growth of online educational programming. You know, we, we've had online programming for quite a long time. But I believe now, and I've seen this in administration, that higher administration is pushing for more online classes, more online programs. And I think it is as a complementary way to offer it to a different audience. And so for us, maybe those who are practitioners in the field already or transfer students who can't access our university, I think the virtual conferences will allow a more international joining of scholars. Um, It allows individuals to participate who may normally not be able to attend certain conferences, especially in the United States. Or other countries, you know, it's just not feasible for them, but now that they can, or with different health precautions, now they, they're unable to come in person or they're, you know, apprehensive about this, but they can still be academically and professionally active and engaged, which is really important. You know, it's, again, more about transitioning and embracing these different adaptations.
1: For 2022, what, what are your hopes for, for the coming 12 months?
4: Hopefully, I think that we're going to, you know, my plans is I'm going to multiple conferences next year. I've got those hotels booked. Like, I'm unlike 2021, it wasn't like, okay, is this going to happen? I'm more confident this is going to happen. I'm excited to do more with my students. In one of my classes this past fall, we had our offender reentry simulation, and, and I teach correction. So they could do that in person again. I look forward to doing that again with them, as well as on a university level. I also look forward, I think selfishly, since I'm in the cyber field, to looking at the research and looking at the data, doing some projects with how has COVID affected cyber criminality? I mean, I think we're, you know, we're seeing how COVID has changed the world in our criminal justice system in a lot of different ways, but also in cyber, how, you know, we've seen people take advantage of individuals with these government scams. And with, you know, identity theft is on the rise because of COVID, but also because people were so technologically dependent. Has that maybe made them more savvy, more aware, more protective of themselves online, or did it expose them more? So I'm really excited for the field for, you know, my colleagues and myself to delve into that and to see what kind of programming we can produce, maybe how we can use this to better educate ourselves as a society, as a whole. Um, I just think it's an exciting time that we're gonna see a lot of different movement academically, professionally. We're gonna see, I think a lot of employment opportunities open up that weren't there before simply because of the reliance on technology. So 2022, I think is gonna be a good year. I'm, I'm very hopeful for a happy, healthy 2022.
1: I've heard the word hybrid a lot more in the last couple of years. Do you think that cyber is going to become much more integrated into a new normal?
4: When the pandemic happened, we had a wide range of hybrid options and including the term HyFlex, which was you're teaching a class in person and you're teaching it online at the same time, and you know, which was a lot of extra. So I do think hybrid is definitely the buzzword for 2021. How can we do both at the same time or have a nice balance? I think that we're going to see that more, not only in classrooms, but also professionally with conferences, with, you know, private and government organizations. We're going to see a lot more of that term used to try to meet needs better. Um, As I said earlier, to have people on a more international spectrum. Um, In June of 2021, my colleague, uh, Dr. Kunshuk Choi from Boston University put on the first White Hat Conference, and it was fantastic. And it, I mean, there were people all around the world who attended and he's going to do it again. Their, their organization is going to expand with that. But I, I see that becoming a hybrid experience. I see in-person and I see, you know, ASC, ACJS. I see a lot of, you know, those organizations and sociology, so many of us in the field trying to bring that in so, so we can offer and be flexible and again, embrace, embrace the technology, embrace the change for the better.
1: That makes me think of something. I mean, you said Flex work and balance in there. And these are, these are terms around work-life balance, and, and that's something that, that HR managers love to discuss. It's yes. very important. But it's something that I've not seen in any kind of real way in academia. Mm-hmm. I don't think that for most people doing research, there really is such a thing as a work-life balance Balance, because so much of their identity is wrapped up in what they research and and their passions. Do do you think this is an opportunity for people to negotiate a way of working that is healthier, like mentally healthier, or, or or are we going to get sucked into a position where it's impossible to turn off?
4: I think both. I think you've you know kind of hit the nail on the head with both. In graduate school, for instance, we are ingrained to say yes, all the time, you know, yes to projects, yes to committees, we're trying to build our Vita, trying to get tenure, we're trying to get the promotion, you know, all these different things. And so for many of us, it is a personal struggle. And I, you know, speak from experience to turn that off and to dial it down. Um, When I had children, that was kind of my kick in the butt to do a little better job of, of balancing and not bringing as much home with me. And, you know, I am the world's worst at taking on too much at one time and enjoying it. I kind of you know, thrive in that way. But I think that we will see both. We'll see people who are able to do a healthier balance because they've been given the tools to do things virtually, to do things in the workplace. And it's really their preference. I think we're going to see a lot. But we will also, I think, see a newer generation of those who can Do more virtually, do more of the hybrid aspect and therefore may overload their plate even more because of this perceived flexibility. I know that that may not be the best answer. You know, it just depends. But I I think it's going to be the the personal choice to go, how much am I going to do? How much am I going to take on?
1: Is there post-tenure coursework on how to say no? That, that seems to be something needed.
4: It's when a mentor sits you down and says, stop it. You know, you have <laughs> to, You I can see it's coming out of your ears, you know, and, and a good mentor will tell you that you need to learn how to, to have your own, whatever your personal life is. And it doesn't have to involve children, obviously, but everybody deserves personal reprieve. And you're a better scholar, a better academic, a better spouse, a better partner, a better parent, all, you can be better in so many different ways if you do take some of that reprieve. In my experience, you enjoy your job more if you're not constantly going through your head, all your to-do list personally. But that is, you know, that's after multiple years of figuring that out. That's not just an instantaneous revelation for me.
1: It's a lot easier to articulate the social value of research if you are a part of society in some way, if you have a life.
4: Right. That's exactly right. Because you recognize, I think, the reality of certain things. It, it all blurs together if you don't take your nose out of the data occasionally and, and just observe what's going on. I love to use my students as a you know, learning tool for myself. I teach cybercrime, but I, you know, don't use a lot of the apps because I don't need to, or, you know, I'm not on online dating sites. And so just to have conversations with them about what's going on and what are the new platforms is amazingly educational for me. And it helps a lot with my own research.
1: That's great. So yeah, I look forward to seeing you hopefully at a conference in 2022. I hope so. That would be wonderful. Big thank you to all of our guests for taking the time out of a really busy month to help us get back on track for the new year. I really enjoyed each of the conversations and i don't know about you but i'm feeling a little bit more optimistic about the research that'll be coming out this year and the growing group of people working on a problem that more and more people are understanding and with a range of in-person and online events that will hopefully be coming to help us produce and share that research maybe we'll even learn how to have a life at the same time and anything's possible dr james will be back next episode to answer another question about digital forensics but in the meantime, this has been Cybercrimology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it's only made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research. You can find out more about the show at cybercrimology.com, and talk to me at cybercrimology on Twitter. Happy New Year's!